This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Roxanne Cody about her absolutely wonderful bookstore, R.J. Julia, in Madison, Connecticut. I've known Roxanne more than 30 years now. I think we go back a long way, and it's really fun to get to talk to you today. Uh, how are you, Roxanne? Just great. Nice to. I think we've known each other since like two minutes after I opened the bookstore. So I think so. One year at that time, I was you know working, living around New Haven and in book yeah. wholesaling, and you were a customer um, for a long, long time. And uh, but we, you know, we and sent we, me one of my best employees. That's right. I think uh, Nancy Who's Brown still with me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, right. you were. I think you were a better employer than I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. She's pretty great. Yeah, she's she is. Too. Well, you you've you have run a terrific store for a really long time, and of course, you know I think a lot of people know how hard it is to be a successful bookseller. Maybe a lot of people don't realize how hard it is. Um, it's a romantic vocation for a lot of people. Um, you know, people aspire to being booksellers, um, you know, kind of on that romantic uh, note of, because it's such a wonderful thing to do where you get to be around books all the time. They kind of forget the hard part, um, which you're probably more familiar with than almost anyone um, right. after doing it for this long. But you have also been throughout your career as a bookseller, you've been a, a you know a, an innovator and you've tried to make the business more than just, um, standing behind the counter, handing books to people, and and maybe you know maybe you should talk a little bit about the history. You know, kind of what motivated you? Um, how did you, you know, how did you become a bookseller? And then kind of what? How I, I'm really interested in how your original and early aspiration for being a bookseller transformed over the course of that long period of time um, because you're still doing it. You're obviously still motivated and you still love it, but things have really changed in that last 30 years. And it's, I think they've, you've changed and uh, the business has changed. So maybe we can talk about that. Okay. So I'll give you sort of a thumbnail, but as I know, you know, I was working in New York I was a national tax director at one of the major accounting firms, which was, you know, when I tell people that I did tax law and tax accounting, they're like, oh my God, how boring. But I loved it. You know, it was interesting. It was a lot of big companies and smart people, but it's more, uh, it, it certainly doesn't speak to your heart. And when I was thinking of leaving my firm and doing something that would speak to my heart, I, I, in a way that I look back on and think sort of almost ridiculously innocently, I thought, well, I don't know enough to open a publishing company. I'm not a writer. I'm not an editor. Um, but I, I instinctively felt like I would know how to put the right book in the right hand. And I mean, that seems like a pretty dumb way to open a business. But I do think that the original notion I had has actually not changed. 
despite how much the world has changed in 31 years. Um, and that notion was, you know, I think of books, for one is, is what I just said. I think the, the sort of joy for the bookseller and the reader to find the right book is about as good as it gets, right? There's a gazillion, gazillion books. And really listening to a reader and figuring out uh, a list of books that might speak to the mood they're in that moment, whether it's, you know, to be educated or charmed or distracted or entertained. I mean, that's a pretty powerful thing to be involved in on a day-to-day basis. So that was driver number one. And that hasn't changed how that might be delivered, how it's done. But that, that cool quality has not changed. Number two was that I felt like the place for dialogue, for engagement had sort of disappeared. That there wasn't, you know, we weren't involved as much in religious institutions. There wasn't the sort of place to just be, you know, the the town green of a place. And I thought a bookstore uh, would be a place where you could engage in conversation, in debate, and and do it in a civil way. And when I thought about that 31 years ago, I don't think I would have imagined the divisiveness that we're seeing now. So those two principles were the principles of the bookstore and they remain the principles of the bookstore. Um, RJ Julia, as you know, has hosted, you know, we do 250 or 300 author events a year and some might be 10 people um, for a debut writer and that can be exciting, and or it could be you know twelve hundred people for Hillary Clinton or Jimmy Carter or John McCain. So, how we do those things is what's changed. But those, ironically, or or probably not surprising to you, David, but the notion that drove my excitement in opening R.J. Joya is really the same as it was in 1989. Well, that makes sense. Actually, it kind of helps explain, you know, why you've been successful. That's important. I also think that you have had to have been good at it in order for this to work because it is it is a challenging uh, business to be in. You know, retail in general... Yeah. Is challenging. Now, you've been lucky in one sense that you're in a town, Madison, Connecticut, that has an, a viable downtown, um, you know, which a lot of places do not anymore. Um, and I assume. David, you know, one of the things that were, one of the things that I think was a big help to me, and your point about Madison is one of them, is because I came from a business background, which, if you remember to those days, Book selling wasn't really considered a business. I think in some ways it's not considered a business now. But my background is as a business person. So 
I thought about it as an intersection of head and heart. So we had a, we lived in New York. We had a weekend house in Brantford and I opened the bookstore in Madison because I did very careful geographic census analysis of every community from New Haven to New London and picked Madison very deliberately for these reasons. One, it's the closest downtown to 95. Madison was close enough to New Haven that people would drive east and close enough to Old Saybrook where people would drive west. Or I might have that backwards, but... No, you got it. You're right. You're right. Um, and so the fact that Madison has had a vibrant downtown wasn't a surprise to me. They had a good education system. They had a sturdy level of household income. And... Ironically, R.J. Julia's has been a key ingredient of Madison's downtown staying vibrant. And so we got involved in the chamber. We got involved with making sure the movie theater got reopened. We were involved when Stop and Shop was redoing the parking lot and how much land would stay open. So I think, and I think what R.J. Julia does is what every independent bookstore in the country that is done well does. That is, they both add to their downtown just by their very existence and their leaders become involved in their communities to make it a better community. Yeah, you know, I right. think RJ Julia is typical of the best of the independents, which, you know, not enough exists, but they exist all over the country. Could you talk a little bit though about well, I mean, there are so so many questions that I have, you know, because, you know, being part of the book business, one of the things that's clear is that there aren't that many places like yours in mm. America anymore. Now, there were more bookstores right. um, and more vibrant bookstores previously. Um, yeah. Obviously, cultural changes, shopping patterns, Americans, you know, the demographic changes in America affect every retail business that is involved, especially in cultural activity, you know, right. like, you know, no video stores, you know, that long gone, but yeah, you know, uh, no record stores, but books have persisted still challenged, you know, for a variety of practical reasons, you know, the commodity part of your business is complicated. Books are heavy. They cost a lot of money to ship. Many, many yeah. books are published. There's not enough shelf space in the world to put all the books that come out on. So you're in this complicated, structurally complicated business to begin with. And then there's this whole issue of people's, the challenge to people's time that, you know, they don't shop as much as they used to. Um, you know, they're, how much time do people have to read all those things, everything that affects the kind of, these are macro trends that you've bucked. So you and your cohort of colleagues, um, which is a fairly small number, um, have managed to overcome that for the re some of the reasons I think you just gave. Right. Um, 
But if you were giving advice, well, of course, this is a terrible question, but do you think that it's possible for there to be more, significantly more, really good bookstores? Or, or do, they, do we have to kind of reimagine bookselling uh, in some way for the newer generations is, you know, to come? Well, I think that, you know, without getting too far into the financial structure of a bookstore, I think the challenge is the margin on books is about 40%. Your payroll, if you're lucky, is 25%. Your occupancy, if you're lucky, is 10%. And that doesn't leave a lot for, <laughs> you know, the lights, the supplies, yep. and everything else. So there is a construct that's a challenge, which is the big obstacle. And and then you, let, let's just think about occupancy. You end up with this um, sort of self-fulfilling problem. Bookstores go to where they could get lower rent they become successful and vibrant and become the lead in the downtown becoming more successful and therefore their rent goes up, right? So yeah. they become they become the victim of their own success. Right, sort of like uh, artists and writers going into loft areas uh, that yeah. nobody wanted and then making them really cool and no longer being able to afford to live there. Yeah, but... Nonetheless, you know, and I think there's increasing pressure on publishers to um, pay bookstores for really what we do, which is we become a a marketing arm for them. You know, if you add up who we all talk to, we'd be the biggest influencers. Well, Companies all over the world are paying influencers substantial amounts of money. Well, they're not paying bookstores substantial amount of money for the influencers that they are, but that's in the new lingo, that's who we are. Yeah. Well, in a way, you're also look at it as a you're a showroom. You know, you're showrooming. Yeah. And why should you get paid only for the books that are sold directly from your showroom? You should get paid for the value that you provide in terms of, you know, yeah. it's almost like advertise. And I know that there is a a, a book chain in <laughs> I won't name them, but there's a uh, the well, I, the air, I will name Hudson News in airport stores has always said to publishers that the value they provide is in fact yeah. in showrooming. Um, that they put your book out on display and millions of people walk by and see your your book cover because they may be rushing to their flight, but they look in the window. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, publishers are coming around. Co-op programs are better. Uh, discounts are better than when we started. But more more needs to happen. And I think publishers are beginning to understand that we may represent 10 or 12% of the market, but we could be representing a majority of the early PR that gives a book legs and gives a debut author legs because as brilliant as Amazon is in 
destroying everything in its wake, it's still not the right place to discover a book. That is correct. You're still not going to go, you need to know what you want. And so independent booksellers remain arbiters and trustworthy arbiters. We're not getting paid to tell you to love this book. We're loving this book and therefore sharing it with you. So, so do I think you can still open bookstores? I do. Does the model need to be tweaked or do you have to figure it out for yourself in, in a, you know, what works a little differently for you? Yes, because, you know, you can't run a business, any business, I don't care what business you're in, without always keeping one hand on innovation. You always have to be sort of scanning the horizon to figure out how you uh, can change, who your customer is. You, the number one thing to me is you really have got to think about what your customer needs and wants and make that happen. You know, too often businesses are like, yeah, I know my customers would like it if I did X, but, you know, it's kind of a pain in the neck to do this and that, and I really can't do it. Well, then don't be in business because your administrative challenges should not should not overcome your number one goal of making your customer happy and understanding how do they want to do business with you? What do they need and what do they want? Because I think if you stay focused on that, you can make it work. So how do you manage to do that? I, I've always, you know, I, I do think it is, it's, you, you know, it's hard for a, a, anybody in business, but I think booksellers especially because it is so time consuming and challenging a business with low, you know, low margins. How does the you particularly, but any bookseller, how do you maintain that knowledge base that of what customers want? Because you, you know, you can't just anecdotally get evidence. Well, I mean, I guess you can in, in a you small can. level, but how do you do it? Well, you do it by, for one, having your really great booksellers. I mean, if I, if I would give you the key to what has uh, made R.J. Joya successful, it would be the things we're talking about. But the real thing is we have always, in our 31 years, had the most extraordinary staff, the most committed, smart, hardworking uh, people that you can imagine. I mean, it's just, when I hear other people complain about their employees, you know, I have nothing to add to that conversation because, you know, and it's the same thing as your customers. Are you taking care? You can't ask staff to take care of a customer if you're not taking care of them. Right, you, yep. you you don't get the abused child to become the kind parent. So it, you know, uh, our staff knows that I think that they are key to what we do. I pay them um, generally above what is paid um, to people in their positions in retail. We've made sure 
that they always have good vacation, that we have health insurance, that, you know, that there are other benefits that we provide. We just set up a, a program where they can take virtual exercises and we pay, you know, we pay for the classes. So, you, you, you know, if you take care of them, they're going to take care of the business. And coming through this pandemic, we learned that in spades. Our, our staff was, they were heroic, our staff, in what they did to make sure that we got through this pandemic and that we were sturdy and that we would survive it. Well, that, that's also, I guess we can't avoid talking about this business without talking about how you manage through you know, the crisis of all time. Um, so what, how did you do this? And, you know, you said, and, and I've been to events in your store, they're a pretty big component, the physical presence of people being in the store. They come, they look at, um, you know, they come to an event, but beforehand they browse the store, they go in, they eat some food, uh, they might get, you know, something to drink, then they go to the event, then afterwards they hang around, they browse the store, you know, they, you know, they end up buying buying from being present and but it's also you know keep that community uh feeling alive because people can share experiences together well how'd you you know what did how did you do that so what we did is first of all within minutes we pivoted to become a fulfillment center um our community who we wrote to if you look at our newsletters that we wrote when the pandemic started uh, and I think this also happened in lots of communities. Our website was in good enough shape. We high-speeded improving it. But the community understood that they needed to switch to online buying. And not only did they switch their online buying that they might have bought inside the store, but they actually switched their online buying from other online retailers to RJ Julius. So, you know, I'm not saying we weren't down 50% for a minute and then down 25%. It was pretty scary in March, April, May, June, July, August, and even into September. You know, the, the government subsidies made a huge difference. We qualified for that. We've got, you know, almost 50 employees. Uh, that took care of a lot. We used the WorkShare program uh, that the state of Connecticut offers to uh, pay part of the pay for people whose hours we had to cut. So no one at RJ Julia's lost their jobs. Everybody got paid if they wanted to work. We figured out how they could work at home. So we, and then, you know, the holidays, were very sturdy. And I think, you know, I think increasingly people understand that how they live their lives is the life that they will get. And if they want a, you know, a cute downtown that's vibrant, if they want a bookstore that's bringing in the best authors from around the country, they need to buy books from us. They need to make sure, it, you know, we don't exist as a stage set, you know, where you're like, come in and see ye old book shopping. <laughs> um, 
and and then you you know you you bring your friends and look around and say, "Isn't this a cute little book shopping?" <laughs> um, well, I laugh because you know Netflix just uh, filmed a movie scene at the bookstore over Memorial Day weekend, and there was an article, and they interviewed the book scouts for Netflix, and they said, "How'd you pick R.J. Joya's?" And they said, well, we wanted a bookstore that looked like the bookstore you would find on a postcard for what bookstores are supposed to look like. <laughs> so, I mean, looking like EO book shopping maybe is fine. But um, so, I, you know, and I do think, I mean, the article that I keep meaning to write is what's the cost of the lowest price? And I think people are beginning to understand that, you know, they can't complain about their downtown going away when they've shifted all their buying online. You you don't get both things. You don't, how you live impacts what the world's going to be like, right? It's true for, you know, any number of issues, but it's certainly true for retail businesses. And when people say, oh, well, the shop doesn't carry what I need anymore, well, how many times a year do you go in there? You, they can't be sitting there waiting for you to ask for, you know, a blue towel. No, it's true. I, I think that people do need to be aware of that. I think that, you know, it's, I agree with you, more people are now, uh, although it probably is situational and localized. You know, there are places still where it's just not going to, it, maybe it's too late or maybe, um, you know, the vibrancy of their downtowns has gone away and they, you just have to wait for it to cycle back. Uh, because, it yeah. do, you know, it is a value that people really believe in and a lot of communities have rebuilt a, and created a new downtown to try to recreate what they once were. And bookstores have been a part of that too. Now, will will some of the changes that occurred during the pandemic for you and do you think for others uh, become permanent? And that is your ability to fulfill orders yeah. online should mean that you can do more of that kind of business and probably want that kind of business. Yeah, so I think that that was the worry, right? That's the big question. Is there a stickiness what happened. And at least right now, there has been enough stickiness to it for it to be enough to make up for uh, the deterioration in event income, right? Which we talked about, and I'll come to that in a second. So yes, but what it does mean is, and this is where it's hard to be a small business, you know, the investment that we need to make to keep our website being um, up to snuff for expectations of a customer is key, right? Because they can love us to bits, but if they come to our website and it's like pathetic, they're going to say, I don't love you that much. So we, we do, we have upgraded our website and we've gotten lots of compliments from our customers, but we have to keep doing that. You know, if there was a downside to all of this, you know, the changes over the last 31 years and then the pandemic, you know, as we accommodate, you know, the enormous changes, 
to some degree, there is the, the worry that you're doing more for less. Uh, and you have to think about how to mitigate that. Right. And of course, the, um, well, I've always wondered whether bookstores could share some of that technology cost because it is something that is replicable. You know, it's why reinvent the wheel if yeah. every bookstore needs to do the same thing to make their own websites stronger. Why not, you know, develop a, a, a web process? You can still customize your store and customize it to look like you, but the back end could be shared expense. And that's some of what the American Booksellers Association does. And, you know, they historically have not done as good a job as I think or wish they had in providing a template for a website that is as sophisticated as it needs to be. Yep. But I do think with the pandemic and Allison Hill, who's the uh, new CEO there, they're doing, they're trying to do a better job. Um, you know, it's not easy because the ABA's membership is made up of uh, the one one woman bookstore and then Powell's, which is one of the largest bookstores in the world. So figuring out how you spend money to accommodate what member is not easy. No, that's true. But again, it may yeah. be, you know, I wonder if, you know, what you alluded to earlier that this idea of um, bookstores being uh, independent bookstores having a purpose that is greater than their previously perceived value might enable support in different ways, possibly even from publishers uh, yeah. to enable some of the capabilities that you might otherwise not be able to afford. Uh, and maybe that's yeah. a, you know an area that ABA or you know, booksellers themselves can explore with the larger, you know, publishing community. It does seem that there's a huge opportunity there um, to call on them. You know, and you sort of alluded to this in a way earlier when you said you don't want to, you know, you kind of don't want to get paid for pay for play. You don't want someone to feel like I'm, you know, recommending this book for you, to you because I was paid to do so. That's not really what you want. No, um, no. But you could use a support for the system that enables you to make recommendations of specific books. You want the general support to do that. But, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, the models that we've all played with is should we become nonprofit organizations uh, so that if you want your bookstore to exist, you get a charitable deduction. I think the navigating that. Uh, to be done perfectly to the um, IRS regulations is tricky, but that's a model. Um, you know, bookstores could take advertising. We haven't, but you could. So you just always have to be thinking about how do you maximize your revenue so you can deliver the quality service that will keep you thriving. Right. It's, it sounds simple. And in some ways it is simple. But when you're running a small business, you know, if there's a lot of energy going into just keeping that train moving. And the, the successful business 
people, small business people know that they have to pick their heads up out of running the train or the train's going to lose steam. So maybe we should talk a little bit before we run out of time, talk about events because I, you know, I think you mentioned that you wanted to say something about that. And I'm very curious about what is it going to look like to go, you know, you had 300 events a year in personal, you know, personal events in yeah. person. Now you go to the pandemic year, you did a lot of events that were virtual. Well, okay. Yep. What happens next? I think it, I think that there will be, um, a series of things happen happening. I think we've learned that there is an appetite for virtual events and it will take its place in the landscape. Um, I think that there is also a thirst for in-person events and I think to a large degree they'll come back. Uh, probably not fully till 22. You know, there might be some tiptoeing to it in 21. And then I think the question is, are we, are we going to have to have hybrid events and what does that look like? Meaning we've got an in-person event that you can zoom into. Well, will the zooming in people feel like orphans or will they feel like that's a perfectly satisfactory way for them to engage in an author event when they don't want to take the time or they can't travel the distance to get it? And right now, like at RJ Julia's, we're looking into what does that technology look like? How do we make that happen? Because I do think there'll be an appetite for all three, meaning all virtual, all all in person, and a hybrid. Yep. I think that makes so sense. So I'm confident that it will come back. You know, we've in the meantime been able to you know, we're certainly not selling the same amount of books, but a number of very large venues around the country that used to do in-person events are doing virtual events, but they didn't want to do the fulfillment. They couldn't pack up a thousand books and send them out. So they hired us to do that. And some bookstores, you know, objected. They said, I'm not in the fulfillment business. Well, you know, my goal is to, for RJ Julia to be alive. Right. So, well, you are in the fulfillment that, business. You should be. Then we are in the fulfillment business. So, um, you know, we've been an event, uh, and Erica Babjack, who is our events manager, has been brilliant about navigating this. And Karen Schumann, who's our kids' events manager, has done an extraordinary job of getting authors into schools virtually, which has been fantastic for the kids, for the authors, for R.J. Julius. Yeah, that's great. And she's now, you know, she's getting calls from all over the country. And that's what I'm saying. That's where you discover there's an opportunity. Right. And the beauty of that is you you can, you don't have to be a local bookstore. We could be doing that in Kansas. Right. That's great. You know, if Karen's great at interviewing kids' authors and figuring out the curriculum material for schools, well, that's, that's, that's not confined to our geographic area. Right. And well, that's a place where I would think publishers immediately would say, well, we, sh- we could work with you on that. That would be really yeah. cool. And that's you should exactly get paid. Right. You should get paid for that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, all right. Yeah. One, one more thing I want to talk about. This is a challenge for 
bricks and mortar bookstores, and that was ebooks, and now it's digital yeah. audiobooks. And right. I'm curious to know your thoughts about how can a bookseller that's treated by its customers as a source of print um, also, or or maybe you'll say that it this is not worth even exploring at this point. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are about uh, di- both ebook reading and digital listening uh, to books. You know, how does that fit into your model? How do you fit into that landscape? So, you know, that's a challenge because that's a very high growth area. Um, and what we do is we work with Libro FM, who's done a, Mark over there has done an extraordinary job. So you can download audio books from RJ Joyas. You go to Libro, um, uh, you go to LibroFM.com. I think that it's LibroFM.com. And you can pick the bookstore that you want credited and then buy your books and they do a great job. They have a great website um, and buy your audio books. It hardly replaces the sale of a book, but it does mean that we can be in that space for right. when you, people you want it. Right. You don't have to be vague. Like if somebody comes in and says, I want to buy an audio book, a, a digital audio, you can say yes. Yes, that's right. That's important. I can say yes. But it is, you know, it's a very, it's a growing, growing part of the industry. And I think it will remain a growing part of the industry. So, um, but we can do it. Libro FM has done a very good job. It's just not as profitable. So, you know, one of the things that I always say about being a bookstore is, it's an eight inch pie. And in my 31 years, all there are are more fours. (laughs) You know, it's still an eight inch pie. Right. (laughs) So, you know, it's just another challenge. Well, but But, you, you you know, here, here's what I would say, David, that, that, um, that sort of defines it all for me is, you know, I still love it. I still want to figure out how to um, make it work. I'm still excited about figuring out what we need to do differently. And I'm still excited about putting the right book in the right hand. When I'm not, you know, I'm 72, I'll pack it in. <laughs> but right now, it's, it's a pretty good damn way to spend a day. Well, yeah, and that's all you could ask for, I think. Yeah. You know, that, right. I mean, that's that's pretty good. And, you know, I yeah. think people do sometimes feel like, oh, my God, my job is killing me. But obviously you don't. And that's, I don't. you know, that uh, that makes it work. And I think, you know, plus your, your openness to change and your willingness to look at it constructively and it be an innovator and not reject um, change as a pain in your butt. I think that's really important. Yeah, that's key. I think people who dig in their heels are just, you know, starting the clock for them for their demise. <laughs> you know, I, I you just can't do that. Well, no, because you're 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 the change is going to happen, and we're talking about things that are, um, you know, really big time 
changes. You know, these are, it's like yeah. standing at the ocean's edge and saying, you know, that wave is not going to knock me over. Um, right. But it, the key, it, the key, David, is two things. And, and, and it's not really more complicated than that. Caring about your customer, taking care of your staff. You know, you can never veer even an inch from those two things. Yeah, I think those are pretty. Those are two pretty good um, watch watchwords to live by. I think not just for book selling. That's the you know that's any retailer should be paying yeah. paying attention to those two things and those two things only, and everything else flows from your commitment to your customer and your employees. I think that's. That's right. I think that's brilliant. That's right. And why not just, you know, make it simple? You know, they always say make it simple, stupid, but that is really yeah. what you need to do because you have to have um, a guide to operating every single day that you can actually measure against all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm one person. RJ Julia wouldn't look anything like what it does without its you know, 40 other staff people. Well, but it also wouldn't look like it does without you, the one person. So you kind of, you need both. You need a leader and you need everybody else to be valuable, not just to be followers, but to be participatory. And, um, yeah. you know, I think obviously you've managed to do that. I think that, you know, that goes to, you know, goes to saying something about your abilities as a leader, I think that's important too. And every leader will say it isn't about me, it's about my people, but that's the way it should be. Yeah, well, I think it's both, right? I think one doesn't operate without the other. You need both things. I agree. Well, I think it, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I think we could have talked about many other things, but I think this was really a good summation of what it means to be a brilliant bookseller in modern America. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. My pleasure, David. This has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I've been talking to Roxanne Cody about RJ Julia, booksellers, and many other things. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>